As we have opportunity uh, this morning, um, it seemed good to Chris and myself as we were, we've been talking about this series in James. We've we've noted a few things. Number one, first of all, James is is it not? James is a hard hitting book, and James comes at us. Uh, he pulls no punches, and there were some Sundays where where I left like, wow, that was just hard hitting, and we just thought it might be helpful. It might be helpful for us as a body. We concluded the series last week officially, but we thought it might be helpful for us to take one additional week and just hit a few of the highlights of where we've been in the book of James because of the overall emphasis of the book of James, that being be doers of the word and not hearers only. So today, I've actually never done this before. Uh, perhaps I should have, but I've never done a recap of a whole book before. We'll see how it goes. You can let me know. But we're going to try to take a few minutes together and recap a few of the highlights of the book and then seek to drive the application so that we can do, in fact, what James says, be doers of the word. In fact, I, I want to invite you to turn one last time to the book of James. Join with me there. I'm going to read uh, a, a small section from chapter 1. So if you would, just go ahead and make your way to James chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 22 to 25. This being, in my mind, the overarching emphasis of all of the teaching of the book of James. I think we find the central focus here. James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. James says this by the authority of God. He says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Lord, this morning we humble ourselves and ask that by your help, you would help us to do what your word just commands us to do. Lord, help us to be doers of the word. It's easy for all of us in this room to hear the word and think, hey, I'm, I'm doing this. But, but actually, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we're doing when all we're doing is hearing. And so, Lord, do the work of translation from the hearing of the word today into the doing of the word in our day-to-day lives. Lord, in this room, I'm the one who needs the most help. I see the word, I hear the word, but sometimes I'm the last to do the word. And so, Lord, help me and help my brothers and my sisters, the beloved people of God. Lord, help us together to apply the word of God. So attune our hearts, Lord, to what you want to teach us and remind us this morning that we might do it and so bring honor to you. This we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May the Lord help us to be doers of the word. Why, why is this call to be a doer of the word so important? Well, doing the word conforms us to the image of Christ, right? Doing the word of God, living it out, it makes us, it shapes us into the image of Christ like nothing else. 
See, God created each one of you, you and me, He created us for a very specific purpose. And that purpose is that we might reflect Him in everything that we say and in everything that we do. And now let me ask you to think back over the past week. And uh, was that true of you? You know, uh, I'm going to illustrate in a few minutes with my speech how that was definitely not true of me on Friday, resulting in me having to, uh, to call someone back and apologize because, because I, I still lack that image of Christ in that sense in me. I, I want my words, I want my being to reflect him. God created each and every person in his own image that we might reflect him in all our ways. We were called to, to image forth our creator, our father, the one who made us. Yet when our first parents sinned, Adam and Eve, when they chose rebellion and sin, it, it broke, as you know, it broke the fellowship that we had with God. And God, in astounding mercy, God sent his son into the world to bear not his own sins, but to bear the sins of people like me. I still can hardly believe that this was God's plan. We sin and he sends his own son as the sacrifice. And Jesus became on the cross, he became our substitute. You know this, this is this is the gospel. But he became our substitute and he bore the punishment that I deserve. The great exchange. Therefore, by faith in Jesus Christ, my sins are justified before God. Meaning that God has applied the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, to Jeremy Bell's heart. And you, if you believe, he has applied the perfect righteousness of his son to me and to all believers. So that when Christ looks upon us, he sees not a bundle of sin, but grace. He sees the perfection of Jesus Christ. This is called the act of justification. Justification, dear friends, is a one-time act. It happens once. You aren't progressively justified. You are either justified by faith in Christ or you are not justified by faith in Christ. It is not progressive. And our prayer this morning is that you are justified before God. Your sins are completely covered and forgiven and canceled. That debt is gone because Christ has covered you. That is our prayer. James knows that about the the people to whom he writes. He's writing to those who are justified. However, they are not yet fully sanctified. Sanctified means, you know, fully like Christ in all of our living and doing and being. He's writing to people that are actually just like you and me. We're not yet fully sanctified. Sanctification is a process whereby God makes us more into his image by shaping our lives according to the word. That's why this book, this letter is so filled with shaping imperatives because God gives us his word so that we are shaped by him. Now, why did I start this way? I start this way because we could never be fully justified by our good works. And yet, God intends for us to walk in good works. So we're justified by the sacrifice of Christ and we are sanctified by the work of Christ in our hearts as we listen to and obey the Word of God. James says, look, don't, don't allow this to be unclear. Like, you're justified by faith 
and that will evidence itself in the works that you do. Your faith will become evident, and he makes that clear as we will see in our review this morning. So how do we start in this simple review, three points of review here? How do we start? We start with humility. We start by saying, Lord, I... I want to live for you. I desire that you are seen in me. I want to reflect my creator, but so often I fall short. So, Lord, help me. Help me today by your Spirit's power to receive the grace that you intend to give to me so that I might walk with you today, that I might be a doer of the word today. Lord, help us. And we start with humility. So, what are the three things that I see as I see this book This letter, what are three things that I see here that are important for us to take home? Number one, important number one, we can face the trials of life with joy because we know that God is at work. This is such a good and helpful word when James starts here. He starts here because I believe he knows this is where a lot of us live. Trials can trip us up, can they not? Trials can, can overwhelm us. The difficulties of life, whether it's a scratched car in our worship leader's car or whether it's a scratched life in in something that, that goes a bit deeper, trials are a part of our lives. And the way that we respond to trials says something about the location of our hope in trial, right? We can deal with a scratched or dented car on one level, but when when the hurt comes inside of us, When we have trials that are not just temporary, but they go on and on and on, how we respond indicates some things about us. And and so I think it's helpful for us to think about together, just by way of reminder, you've heard this as we've gone through it, but by way of reminder, what do trials do? How does God use trials in your life and in my life to shape us? Well, first of all, trials test the genuineness of our faith. Look at verse 2 and 3 in chapter 1. He says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Trials come to test our faith. An untested faith is an unverified faith and it's easy for us to say, yeah, I, I love God. I follow him if, if things are going well. But when trials are coming, when things are definitely not going the way that we would like them to be going, then we receive a test. It proves the genuineness or lack thereof of our convictions of our faith in God. In the trial of our faith, when the furnace of affliction is burning, it reveals something about our faith. God intends that trials come that they would test and refine our faith. It was back when I was uh, 12 years old, I believe, that I bought my first ounce of gold. It's the only ounce of gold, by the way, that I've ever bought. Um, in fact, to be fair, I bought a half an ounce because my dad, who was helping me, he's like, well, I'll go halves in with you. So I bought a half an ounce of gold when I was 12 years old, thinking that I was this great prospector. Well, you know, I never got the gold in the mail. And every year that we had it, I was charged a storage fee 
for an ounce of gold, and that was a, it was just a bad business venture. And uh, I got nervous, and I sold back out to my dad way early. I wish I still had that ounce of gold, but it did make me wonder something about gold. You know, where does gold come from? How do they how do they make gold? How is does gold just appear? No, it's refined. It's purified. And what's what's the process of the purification of gold? You probably know this already. Well, gold is refined by fire. And so as the heat is turned up and that gold is molten and 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 as the heat is turned up what rises to the surface are the impurities within that gold so that the the gold worker whatever his name is can scrape off the top the impurities that rise when the heat goes up those impurities come out and he can scrape it off and what is left is pure gold think about that as it relates to your life in trial think about that when you're going through hard times think about that when you consider your life and Some of the turns in your life you didn't anticipate, you didn't necessarily expect. And sometimes it feels like the heat is cranked up. The Lord is at work. The Lord is refining your faith. Though the heat may be in fact turned up, it's out of love and it's out of a desire to bless you that trials come. I know this sounds crazy because none of us want trials. None of us. That's why we call them trials. They're difficult. They're hard. When James says count it all joy, it doesn't mean that we have to like our trials. In fact, we're not going to like them because they are trials. But it does mean that we can face our trials that the Lord brings to us because He's at work. Because He's refining us, dear friends. I know I'm preaching to the choir. You believe this. You trust the Lord in trial. But sometimes we need to be reminded that trials come to test the genuineness of our faith And in times when that heat is turned up in that particular trial, we are tempted to say, Lord, where are you? All I'm feeling right now is the heat, and it's pretty warm, and I'm pretty uncomfortable. If that's you this morning, dear friends, beloved, hear the word of the Lord, not my words. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know You know what's going on. That the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. What else? Verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, trials come to test the genuineness of our faith and trials come to cause us to grow in our faith as those impurities are weeded out, as they're scraped off the top of our faith. Do you know what happens? Our faith in Christ grows. It becomes more pure. It becomes more vibrant because we no longer hold on to false hopes. Those false hopes have risen to the top and it gets scraped off. 
God is causing us to grow. God doesn't want us to remain like an infant. God wants to cause us to grow. Recently, I saw a child that I had not seen for a number of years. And the last time I saw this child, they were this little bumbling infant that couldn't quite honestly do anything except smile and look cute. And that's what infants are supposed to do. But they're not supposed to stay there, right? This is what God does. He takes us from some, something that really can't do a whole lot and he, he grows us and he makes us into his image and he helps us so that we now can bring honor and glory, not just through existing, but by our words and by our actions, we can, we can bring honor and glory to God. And, and for some reason, in the wisdom of God, he chooses to do this through trials, through hardships. It yields, what does Hebrew says? It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness in our life. And he tests us to help us to cling fast to him all the more. You, you remember the test and the trial of Abraham when God said, you know, go ahead and sacrifice your son Isaac. And, and Abraham, in such great faith, he, he set his son upon the altar and he was ready to follow the command of Christ. And at just the moment of sacrifice, there was another lamb that was provided for the sacrifice. What a test. God was refining the faith of Abraham. God was making it pure. God was at work in Abraham's heart and his life. And though I can't imagine being faced with something like Abraham was faced with, trials cause us, dear friends, to grow. They help us to be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so let me just pause now and say, are you being tried? Are you being tested right now? Is your faith being worked over through a trial? Dear friend, the, the message of the book of James is this, is that God's at work in you. God's producing something beautiful in your heart and in your life as you look to him in the middle of the trial. As you keep your eyes not on the wind and the waves where all the trial stuff is happening, but you lift your head up to the God of the wind and the waves and say, Lord, I may not understand I may not know all the things and all the reasons for which I'm walking through this, but as you look at Christ, he will sustain you and you will be reminded that he is at work. See, trials, they, they not, not only make our, our faith genuine, they not only cause us to grow, they, they loosen our grip on the things of this world, on the, on the false hopes that we have. Because sometimes we're pretty self-confident people, Right? Some of us in this room, maybe perhaps more so than others, but we can have a pretty strong sense that, hey, I am an American. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. And we tend to think about life in that way. Well, where there's a problem, uh, let's fix it. Sometimes God sends trials 
to such a degree that we can't fix it. And it's his, it's his kindness to do that. Because if we go through life, hear this, dear friends, if we go through life thinking that we ultimately have the ability to be the solution to our troubles, then we won't hold fast to Christ, will we? We'll hold fast to our own abilities. We'll hold fast to our own intellect. We'll hold fast to our own financial abilities. God sends trials, dear friends, to loosen our grip on ourselves, on our own doing. Not that we just are passive. I'm not suggesting that. I'm saying God sends us these things so that we will cling fast to one man, to one thing, and it's Christ. And he does that through the pathway of suffering through trial. He does it. So do you see that God is at work to loosen your grip on those things so that your grip is all the more tight on Christ? He loves to grant to us wisdom in the midst of trials. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives how generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. So if you find yourself this morning in the midst of a trial, you're wondering, Lord, what is my next step? Here's a promise. He will give you wisdom when you ask him for it. And when, when all things seem like it's a loss, when it seems like the trial has just gone in the, about the most opposite direction that you could possibly imagine, God is still at work, dear friends, right? God is working his way. He is making his purification known. He is testing your faith and he is refining the dross so that he can become our supreme treasure. Trials drive us deeper into Christ himself. You may recall, I I quoted this about a year ago, but I, I just love this quote because it helps me. Spurgeon said, I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. How do you say that? Unless that you believe that in the ocean of infirmity, in the ocean of trial, when wave after wave crashes seemingly on your head, When the diagnosis doesn't go away, when you don't get better, when the relational difficulty persists even after years of praying, if you can learn to kiss the wave that throws you against the rock of ages, then you can be assured of something, dear friends, that God is mightily at work. That God is ripping away from you your self-sufficiency. And he is placing you on the one rock upon which you can stand. Trials come and trials refine us so that God can be glorified 
in our lives. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this morning? That's the claim of James here. There's no other way, no other way to be able to count our trials joy than to believe that God is good underneath them. And he reminds his dear readers in verse 17, he says this of God's character. He says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So what's James doing? Okay, here, again, context is so important. These people are people who have been ripped out of their homes via persecution. Nobody wants to be ripped out of their home by persecution. They're, they're dispersed in other lands. They're in a new place. They've had wave after wave of difficulty. He's saying, hey, brothers, sisters, count it joy because you know the God's at work. And then what does he do masterfully in verse 17? He says, and by the way, just let me remind you of the character of the God who is orchestrating all things. He is the one who gives every good and every perfect gift. Translation, we will not receive something from God that is bad. Ultimately. I still remember the night when my, my own brother was taken home to the Lord in a car accident. I still remember that night and the weeks that ensued. The grief of my family and yet the hope that we had in the sovereign purposes of God. I still don't understand why God called him home when he was 18 years old. I don't have an answer for that. Except that I believe in the sovereign goodness of God. And for some reason it was time for my brother to go home. I've learned to kiss the waves. Can we say this? Right in our hearts. Can we say this? I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. Now, what does this mean for us in a day-to-day way? Here's, here's a thought to consider. I think this means that when we are in the middle of trials, when, when we experience the, the sorrows of this life, that we have to yield our, our immediate Uh, interpretation of the trials. So is this not true of you? This is definitely true of me. When a trial comes into my life, I I think this, oh no, this is bad. This is just bad, right? I mean, again, who wants a trial? Who wants difficulty? I don't. And so when a a genuine trial comes into my life, I, I tend to interpret it as Oh, this is bad. God, you, you've, you've lost sight of me. Aren't I following you, Lord? Aren't I doing what you want? I tend to think trial equals bad. Whereas, trials may in fact be the means that God is using to sweeten your faith in Jesus Christ. And so, I think this is a call, I believe this is a call for us to hold back and making definitive statements on the hard things in our lives, right? Like, I I don't like this trial. Again, you don't have to like it, 
to be able to count it joy. I don't like this trial, but I can count it joy because I know that God is at work. Author and theologian Scott Hubbard uses an analogy I found helpful. He, he says, imagine uh, that you've hired a trainer, uh, you want to run a marathon, and that you've hired a trainer for a marathon. And he comes and he wakes you up at 4 a.m. to go run mile after mile. He forces you to do uncomfortable stretches and squats and pushes you regularly, daily, even moment by moment, to the point of pain. And though you never grow to necessarily like the training, you know you can feel the difference that you are better equipped more and more to run the race that you desire to run that's set out in front of you. You hire a trainer. He's going to work work you hard so that you can run the race before you. You see the immediate application. The Lord is our trainer, and he uses trials as means to prepare us for the race that he calls us to. I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. How can we count it joy when we face trials? Dearly beloved church, we can count it joy not because we like it, but because we know that God is at work. We can count it joy because we know that he is refining us. We can count it joy because we know that he is maturing our faith. We can count it joy because we know that in the heat, he's removing the stuff that we hold on to and he's cleaning it off so that our faith is refined so that, that we can actually cling fast to our Lord without these other things that we cling to. We can also know that he's going to supply every bit of wisdom that we need as we ask him for it. We can hold on, brothers. If you're in a trial this morning of particular note, here's what James says. Hold on. God is at work. He is doing something. He is refining your faith. He is making you into the image of Christ. And just like surgery that sometimes we need to get cut open in order to get the cancer out. The surgery is painful, but the fruit and the result will be health and healing and God being shaped more in you and less of you and more of Him. Hold on, James says. Hang in there. God is at work. He will never leave your side. He will never abandon you in that trial. And so, dear friends, wherever you are this morning, hold on. God is at work. We can face the trials of life with joy because we know that God is at work. Now, if you're worried that my second and third are going to go super long and we won't get out of here for lunch, hold on, we'll be okay this morning. But that, I think, is the main thing that I see happening in the book of James. Point number two, review number two, love for God will result, love for God will result in love for your neighbor. Over and over again throughout the letter, you remember uh, this, that James drives the practical application of our faith into our daily lives. If we truly walk with God, if we love God, James says that is going to evidence itself in good works. 
Again, good works could never save us. That's not his point. Rather, good works are the evidence of a heart that beats for and loves Jesus Christ. Therefore, James famously says, faith without works is dead. Let's read it uh, again in verse 14 through 17 of chapter 2. He says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, giving them, uh, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is saying true faith will be evidenced in our lives. It will result in good works. If he has changed our heart, if he's put a new heart in us, a heart that wants to obey, well then that faith that we claim will show forth in the way that we live. And then he gives many applications. I'm just going to highlight two briefly. Number one, when we love God, when we have his, his love pulsating within our hearts, it's going to enable us to treat one another with impartiality. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, what is partiality again? Partiality is judging or showing favoritism based on external appearance. Uh, he uses an example of two, two people walking into church. One is, is dressed very much in wealth. The other one is very evidently uh, not wealthy. And if we treat one that's wealthy, it was like, oh, come here, sit here. And the one who's not wealthy is like, oh, you can sit wherever, maybe even at my feet. He says that that's partiality. God is not partial. No, God, God is impartial in his dealings with all people. Partiality is doing this. Partiality is judging our neighbor. And if we say we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then we will love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So the Lord's glory is at stake in the way that we treat one another everywhere. Not just in the church, but everywhere in the world. We treat one another with impartiality. We don't, we don't size someone up and then see how might they benefit me or how might they impact me and then treat them according to that. No, being impartial means we treat one another because this other person that we're encountering right now is created in the image of God and therefore has dignity and worth because they've been created by God and therefore we're going to be impartial in how we treat them. The Lord is glorified as we walk with that kind of impartiality. Then he goes on to say in the church especially, um, the way that we speak will be revealed and it will help us to see our need for the Lord. The way that we speak in the body to one another is of great application. In fact, there's so much in the book of James about how we speak to one another. Uh, again, we did five different sermons touched on this. Let me, let me read. Would you turn with me to chapter 3? I just want to read a few verses to, to remind us 
of what James is going after here. He says this, James 3, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now he he levels the playing field. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. And then he illustrates. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members staining the whole body, setting the fi- on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. He could not use more graphic imagery. For every kind of beast and bird, reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a f- restless evil full of deadly Poison. Now, let, let's, let's say what James is not doing. James is not trying to condemn us. That's not his purpose in saying all those things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's not condemning us. What he is doing is leveling the playing field as it relates to our tongues. And he's saying there is not one person um, around, there's nobody who doesn't struggle with self-control related to the tongue, and now let me illustrate myself. As you know, Ellie's getting married, and um, we are in the process of doing a lot of legal things, like going to the fast tag place to change over, you know, insurance and, and title and tags and all that kind of stuff. So Friday, I am in a let's get this done kind of mode. Do you ever get in those modes? I imagine maybe you do. So uh, I call Ellie, hey, can you meet me at the fast tag? Yes, I can meet you, Dad. We'll, we'll get this done. You know how things go at the fast tag place. Have I not learned my lesson? Apparently I have not. So I go into the fast tags with Ellie and um, I, I get a lady that I've dealt with before. And the Lord is at work in my heart. So, um, and so I go in there and I thought we had covered all the bases. I'd called my insurance agent that morning. Uh, like, okay, what do I need to do? This, okay, got, got the checklist. It was all ready to go. And then she says, oh, no, it's not. You need this, this, and this, and this. And I was like, well, my insurance agent said this, that. He's like, well, I don't care what your insurance agent said. This is what you need. And so I was like, well, hold on. I'm going to get on the phone with my insurance agent while you keep talking to me. So I'm on the phone with my insurance agent trying to talk to her while she's still talking to me. And I said, did you hear that? And, you know, and, and finally, I, I just said to my insurance agent, dear lady, I said, uh, you know, I just, I just, I wasn't, I didn't hang up the phone on her, but I was, I like, I don't want to do this twice. I'm going to have to do this. And I just, I said, see ya. Thank you. You know, hung up with the phone. I said, you know, I maintained, you know, some degree of quorum, decorum with this lady at the fast tag place, but I, we exited rather quickly. And um, here's why I'm saying this. I got back to the office. 
and I'm preaching, and I'm reading about speech. And, you know, if you read a transcript of my words, I don't think you'd say, oh, you were off the charts in your sin. I I just know where my heart was. And I was convicted by the Holy Spirit. And so I picked up the phone about an hour later, and I called my insurance agent, and she got on the line. And I said, hey, this is Jeremy. Um, Do you remember speaking with me? (laughs) As if she would say no. Um, And she said, yes. She was very kind. And I said, well, I'm calling simply, I'm not calling to talk about insurance. I'm calling to apologize to you. Because, you know, just the way I I ended the phone call was not in keeping with, with, you know, my faith in the Lord. And I'm sorry. And she was very affected by that. She said, you have no idea the kinds of things that people say to me. And what you said was, but you have no idea how much this means to me. And she was very affected by it. Here's what I take away. (laughs) Please pray for your pastor because the Lord has a lot of work to do. But the power of words. I know it's not a new thought. The power of words, the power of how we speak. We can use our words. I mean, what, what does James say here? From, from the same mouth, you know, sorry, verse 9. With it, with our tongues, we bless the Lord our Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, things, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. There is a way that God intends your pastor to speak. There is a way that God intends you to speak. And when we fail, because we do stumble in many ways, when we fail... We, we can begin with humility and say, Lord, I'm sorry I failed. We can apologize to whomever we might need to apologize to. And in the process of doing that, do you know what happens? The Lord pours out the grace. The Lord pours out mighty grace because the, those things are steps of humility. Remember, James says God does what to the proud? God opposes the proud. What does he do to those who are humble, who express humility? He gives grace to them. And so when you fail the next time, dear brother, sister, in your speech, because I know you will, because I will as well, let us, let us be humble and receive the grace of the Lord and I believe the grace of the Lord means not just, okay, your sin is covered. No, it, it helps me because I'm going to go, I do have to go back to the fast eggs place. So I'm going to go in there by the grace of God with a different mindset. I'm going to go in there saying this might not go the way I want it to go yet again, but I'm going to go in there by the grace of God in a different way. You see, God God uses these things to refine us, to make us different. And James is saying, 
we say that we have faith, it affects everything in our life, even the way we deal with changing our car registration. It goes to every corner, and so we speak to one another. We don't tear people down. We, we build up. We use our words to encourage, not to tear down. And so where there is, you know, again, I, this, is, this is Mother's Day. I don't, I don't know. Just a thought. There may be even a, a word of apology to a mom or something. You know, Mom, I, I guess I, I've not really said this to you, but perhaps be open to that brother, sister, as the Lord leads. You know, sometimes we just stumble with our words and, and God intends our words to reflect him, right? What causes quarrels, James says in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? There was a passion in me on Friday, my passion was to get this done. And that was my objective. I mean, it's plain. I'm going to get this done. And when obstacles came, you see, you hear how I responded. So as we ask the Lord, he's going to give us the grace to make the change in our hearts. Lord, you've got more work you want to do in me, and so do your good work in, in my heart. I was reading Mark Dever uh, this week on, on James, and he said a phrase that, that just struck me and I, about our speech. I want to share it with you here. He says, our speech is not primarily for expressing ourselves. It is for expressing God's character. Now, I don't know if that lands on you like it lands on me, but, you know, so often we think about our tongues as, hey, let me express myself. No, that's not what our tongue is for. Our tongues are given for the expression of God in us. Our speech is not primarily for expressing ourselves. It is for expressing God's character. I, I like that. I think that helps. That gives me grace to say, Lord, I want to express your character today in every conversation that I have. May it be that I'm expressing your character because faith without the expression, faith without works, it's a dead faith. I don't want to have a dead faith. May it, may it come forward that I use my tongue to express not me but God's character. Finally, dear friends, there is great power that God wants to remind us uh, of in faith-filled prayer. There's great power in faith-filled prayer. Chapter 5. Part of the challenge of preaching like this is like there's so much good stuff that we could be here for a long time. But there is great power in faith-filled prayer. Look at verse 13 of chapter 5. Turn with me there again. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. There is great power in faith-filled prayer. James calls the church, not just the elders, James calls the church 
to pray. Your prayers, prayed in faith, have great power as we are asking God. He says it in verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I think we need to be reminded of that sometimes because we pray for things and, and what we're praying for doesn't come to pass and we think, oh man, I guess I don't have much power in my prayer. I, I guess I'm, maybe I'm not praying with faith. Now, it's possible that, that we can pray without faith from time to time, but, but James doesn't want us to, to look and say, oh man, I'm, I'm not a super prayer. I'm not like Elijah. No, he says Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. So don't underestimate your prayers, your ordinary prayers. Chris preached a great sermon on this a few weeks ago. Don't underestimate the power of your ordinary prayers. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. And he prayed and God stopped the rain and he prayed and the rain came. And God is working. In our church, God is working through the prayers of his people. You're going to hear in coming weeks testimonies of God at work in the, the prayers of the people of God. Suffice it to say now, God wants us to be reminded, dear friends, of the power that he unleashes in prayer as ordinary people like you and me. We just come to him and we ask him for prayer. So let me, let me draw us to a close here. These are three highlights of the text. We can face trials with joy because we know God's at work. We can, we can experience and, and see the love of God on display um, as we love our neighbor with our speech, treating one another with impartiality. And there is great power in faith-filled prayer. I, I want to share in closing a story from the, uh, the man last Saturday um, that spoke to us at the men's breakfast because it's a powerful testimony. I'm so glad, by the way, ladies, that you enjoyed Katie Ferris yesterday. Sounds like it was a wonderful time together. Um, we also, as men, we gathered with Fred Zaspel. He's a, he's a pastor of a local church. He's a theologian. He's a wise man. Uh, he, he loves Jesus. Um, many of us may not know um, that he ha- had a daughter. Uh, her name was Gina. Um, who for about a dozen years suffered intensely with many physical maladies that ultimately took her life as a 29-year-old. Um, and I want to draw our collective attention to the faith that Fred and his wife uh, articulate as they reflect on lessons learned during this time. Let me, let me quote him for a moment. United to Christ by faith, Gina belongs, his daughter's name was Gina, Gina belonged and belongs in an ongoing way to God. And through the years of her suffering, we reminded ourselves often that the God who in grace had rescued her in Christ from sin loves her even more than we do. And so we trust his providence He is too wise ever to make a mistake and too good ever to do us wrong. He is too wise ever to make a mistake and 
too good ever to do us wrong. And we acknowledge that just as He was free and sovereign in giving Gina to us 29 years ago, so now He is free and sovereign and good and just in taking her. He has not wronged us. Indeed, we not only affirm that great truth, we rest in it. This God is Himself our Father, a Father who knows what is best for His children and faithfully directs our lives accordingly. Moreover, He is the Father who in love one day gave up His own Son to bear our curse in order to redeem us to Himself. And then I I love the way He concludes. Yes, of course, there are many why questions that we cannot answer. So he is real. Yes, there are many why questions that we cannot answer, but we lack no proof of God's love or his goodness. A father writing the very week that he lost his 29-year-old dear daughter, writing in faith, writing in trust, writing in hope because of the character of his father. You can't write words like that and mean them if you don't believe that God is good. And so at the end of it all, dear friends, we have hope, real, vibrant hope, regardless of our circumstances this morning. We have real, vibrant hope Because our Father is a Father who gives good gifts. And every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights in whom there is no shifting or shadow due to change. So, dear friends, whether we're in the midst of a a challenging trial and God is calling us to take hope afresh this morning in His good character in the fact that He's always at work, in the fact that He is refining your faith and making you more into the image of Christ through this trial than He could otherwise, let us rise on this day, dear church, with great faith and with great hope in the character of our great God in whom we can all together say He is too wise ever to make a mistake and too good ever to do us wrong. In just a moment, I want to call the worship team. In just a moment, we're going to sing this song. I picked it as a concluding song for us. Uh, What is our hope in life and death? I want to read to you verse 2. It says this, What truth, what truth can calm the troubled soul? Here it is. God is good. God is good. That's the truth that calms the troubled soul. Where is His grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood who holds our faith when fears arise, who stands above the stormy trial, who sends the wave. Remember we talked about kissing the wave. Who sends the wave that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ. Oh, sing Alleluia. Our hope, it springs eternal.
Because God stands above all things. He orchestrates all things for our good that He might receive the glory. That we might receive Jesus Christ as our sweet treasure. The one whom we hold with all our hearts and minds and souls. And so, Lord, as we finish out this time in the book of James, we say thank you, Lord, for the words that we've heard. Thank you for the word that you gave to those people who were dispersed and away from their homes. Thank you for the hope and the comfort that you offered to them through these words that they can indeed hold fast. They can have hope in the midst of difficult times because you're at work. You're refining them. You're maturing them. You're changing them. And so in the same way that they received hope, so do we receive hope this morning. What is the hope that we cling to? It's Christ and Christ alone. Lord, build faith in our hearts. Cause faith to rise. When we're asking you for things and your answer is no or not yet, let us continue to pray. Let us continue to hold fast. Lord, enable our hearts to cling to the rock of Christ. He is who we desire. So we pray for this. And we ask this together in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And all God's people together said, Amen. May it be so. Would you rise as we sing our closing song?